to our teaching in the Gospel of John. Now, the last time we were here, we finished chapter 16 in dealing with the interval between the last Passover, the final Passover of Jesus, and his entering into the Garden of Gethsemane, where he would be ultimately arrested and crucified. But we were in that particular section, chapters 14, 15, 16, and now chapter 17, in dealing with Jesus, is sort of a, a farewell address to his disciples in the sense of Jesus' final words to his disciples right before he is crucified. But we in, we finished chapter 16 in dealing with Jesus's revelation. And, he, and this is the whole point of everything that he was about to die. And so he was preparing his disciples for his upcoming uh, being gone away from them. That is, we know that Jesus will be killed, he'll be crucified, resurrected from the dead. Finally, he'll ascend into heaven to the which he is still there at this present time, a long time away from the disciples. So he wanted to comfort their hearts in his absence. He also wanted to tell them about things that they will encounter, namely persecution and suffering, so that when they began to undergo all of these things, they would not be, or should I even say, they shall not become disheartened because of all of the sufferings. And Jesus wanted to have, wanted them to have his continuing joy in the furtherance of the ministry. That is, as Jesus has left and gone, the ministry will be in the hands of the apostles. And of course, we understand it, the church as in a principal way, but namely in the hand of the apostles, they will be continuing the work of Jesus's ministry. And as they continued that work of Jesus's ministry, the world would continue to treat the apostles as they treated Jesus. And this is one of the things that Jesus highlighted in chapter 16, the hatred of the world. But nevertheless, in his absence, Jesus promised the Holy Spirit who would comfort his people in all of their sufferings, strengthen them so that they continue in the ministry, bring to their remembrance, understanding things that Jesus was not able to tell them at the moment that he was, that, that he was living with them because their hearts were so burden because Jesus was saying to them that he was about to leave. And then finally, Jesus talked about his resurrection and all of these things. And as he moved towards the resurrection issue, the point of his death, uh, he made the disciples understand that they themselves would ultimately betray Jesus. And the sense of betraying is the sense of denying Jesus. Okay. But anyway, so we finished with chapter 16. Now let's get into chapter 17. Chapter 17 is not that lengthy and it is not uh, heavy, really, really heavy in theology that's difficult to understand. So we should be able to finish chapter 17 uh, in one simple video. And as I said, because the theology is not so heavy, we uh, it's not going to be that big of a deal. Okay. But the essence of chapter 17 is it is a priestly Prayer. Now, when you understand the idea of priestly, priestly simply means a go-between, one who is representing one party to God, both of the parties. You got God as one party, and then you'll have the disciples as another party. That's disciples, apostles. We'll talk about that as we work through the text. 
And it is Jesus who functions as the go-between, the priest who takes one party's, his desire for one party, that is the disciples, to God. And this is why we call it a high priestly prayer of Jesus. And this is the final prayer that Jesus gives for his disciples before his crucifixion, okay? And it's not really lengthy again, guys. It is substantive, but it is not difficult. All right, so let's just get started with the final prayer that Jesus gives his disciples. Again, let us throw it through the background in our minds. This is somewhere between the ending of the Passover meal, because all of it basically from chapters 14, 15, 16, as I just said, is between that Passover meal and Jesus going into the Garden of Gethsemane, somewhere in between all of that, that Jesus gives this final prayer. Okay, enough said about that. Let's just go into chapter 17. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, I having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now, there is a little, I wouldn't say heavy theology, guys, but there is some wonderful theology in these particular verses. And as you see, one of the main themes in the prayer of Jesus is what? One, one way, let me tell you something. One way that you can understand when something is thematic, a theme, a purpose in something in a gospel or a particular section reading in the Bible is by the repetitious use, usage of a particular word, by the repetition of a particular word. And it is clear what word do you already see being repeated again and again? Glory. So the idea of chapter 17 the primary theme or purpose for 17 is glorification. That it, and it will be, we'll see, the glorification of the Father, the glorification of the Son, and the glorification of his people. And that becomes the primary theme that Jesus will pray for. He will pray for that the glory of the Father be revealed. And when Jesus speaks of the glory of the Father, he is speaking, remember the last thing that he said, I believe in chapter 13, get up, let us be going so that the world may know that, the, that I do love the Father, but I'm slowing it down. The glory of the Father is seen in the obedience of Jesus in voluntarily offering his life on the cross. By Jesus doing this, it fulfills, he fulfills the will of the Father, and this brings the Father glory. Now, we're not going to get into all of those details that are connected, but ultimately, just remember this way. It was the Father's plan. We understand the triune Godhead, but nevertheless, in the purposes and plan of redemption. It is the Father, Father's plan to send forth his Son to pay the penalty for sin and the righteousness of his life to be applied to those 
whom he, the father, has chosen to believe in his son. And so therefore, in sending his son, it would accomplish salvation, fulfill the will of the father, and this brings glory to the father. So that's glory to God. Then there's glory to the son, and we'll talk about that as well. The glory to the son, as Jesus is talking about, is number one, obedience to his father, that he may magnify and glorify his father in all things. And then finally, the glory that Jesus, we'll talk about that. I'm premature, but I'm just explaining the issue of glory. Finally, the glory that Jesus had in eternity past. We'll talk about that. Then the third part of glory will be the glory that Jesus desires for his people to have. That is for his disciples, even for all of his people. So as the father is glorified, the son will be glorified and the son will pray for the glorification of his people. And all of these things come together in unity. And that will be kind of like the glue that binds the theme of glory together. Glory of the Father, glory of the Son, and glory of his people, all of this held by unity. Unity that the Father has with the Son, the Son has with the Father, and later on we'll see that the Son, Jesus, in his priestly prayer here, will be praying for the unity of the church the unity for the church to have with Father and the Son himself. So the theme of chapter 17, it is the prayer, the high priestly prayer of Jesus for the glory, for glory, just says that it's just simply say glory, for glory and for unity. Okay, so now let's get back into the text. And so here, verse number one and 17, Jesus recognizes that the time for his crucifixion has come. And that's what he means when he says the hour has come. And also when he says glorify your name, all of this is pointing forward to his soon crucifixion. Because remember now, let us set the time again. Very soon, Jesus is going to arrive in the garden of Gethsemane where Jesus will be found, you know, Judas knows where he goes to pray. He's going to come out with the band of soldiers, arrest Jesus, and you guys know the rest. Ultimately, Jesus will be crucified, right? So glory refers to this soon crucifixion of Jesus. And notice that he may glorify you. We've already explained that. His obedience to the Father and voluntarily giving up his life gives glory to God the Father. Then Jesus already understands all things, even though Jesus functions in this, he, okay, even though he functions, now notice the words that I'm using, saints, in a subordinate role as the son. That's what I mean, a subordinate role as the son. Why do I say subordinate? The son is obedient to the will of the father. The son is sent by the father. The son obeys the father. This is the subordinate role that Jesus plays in procuring our salvation. It has nothing to do with his equality with God. We'll see that as we have seen that over and over and over and over again in the gospel of John, even as John states it out, as we've said it many times, if you've been following me, 
in the very first verse of John. What? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God. Tell me about the nature of the word. The word was God. And that word, God, became flesh and we understood, we addressed him as Jesus of Nazareth. Has nothing to do with Jesus's equality with the Father and being God himself. But in the role of salvation, he plays a subordinate role to the Father in that he obeys the Father. But anyway, enough said about that. I've explained that a number of times anyway. But Jesus understands who he is. Notice that you've given him authority over all flesh. Then he makes that reference once again. Remember, we love talking about in John. John is one of the most beautiful uh, books in the Bible that deals with the principle of election. And again, go back and look at the video that I did in John chapter six, verses what, 36 through 41. Those whom the father has given to me. In other words, without rehashing all of this again, but just in case you're a first time uh, viewer of this particular video, those who come to Jesus are given by the father. They belong to the father. The father has selected them out of the world for himself and has given them to Jesus. Those whom God has given to Jesus will come to faith. We'll come to believe that Jesus is God and Messiah. And therefore, in believing in Jesus, Jesus will give them eternal life. But not only will Jesus give them eternal life, I'm in the John 6 passage again, he says he will never lose any one of them. This is what is called eternal security. And why will Jesus never ever lose any individual who comes to him. Jesus said, because it is the will of my father that I do not lose even one, but resurrect all of them at the last day. So we have what? The election of the saints, that is, salvation is of God. It is God who chooses and purposes one's unto salvation. And then we have the eternal security that is given through the will of God by the power of the son. But anyway, this is what we see going on again. And all of this continuously threads through the gospel of John. And this is why I say the gospel of John is one of the most beautiful books that you have in dealing with election because it is this principle John never lets us forget. We are who we are. We have come to God because God has chosen us. Not we chose God, but God chose us. And therefore it is because of the work of God in our heart that we put our faith in Jesus. But enough said about that. Again, notice how all of this congeals in the final prayer of Jesus. That is, all of these principles come to a point. And what is Jesus saying? That to all whom you have given him, again, the relate, it go, it relates right back to John chapter six, whom all, all that God has given me will come. Now, specifically, 
we understand that Jesus is praying for the 11 apostles. Remember, Judas is going to betray Jesus, okay? And Judas is not authentic. Jesus is specifically praying for the 11. However, principally, his prayer does apply principally for all of his people. There are some things that would be unique for the apostles alone, but then there are other things that would be broad and have an application for all of God's people, even to this time, okay? But nevertheless, Jesus talks about the those that you have given him that he may give them eternal life. Again, this is simply another reflection back to his own teachings in John chapter six, as Jesus recognizes before he offers his life, he understands even though he is doing this, do not misunderstand this as to be some form of weakness of any kind. This is strength in his greatness. And it also shows he understands who he is. He understands who the father is and what the father has given him and that what he is about to do at this moment is according to the plan and purposes of God, this plan of salvation. That's what all of that's all about. And that's why it talks about this eternal life that they may know you, the only true God. And this goes back again when Jesus would teach what? You cannot have the Father, you cannot know the Father apart from knowing the Son. He who has the Son has the Father. But if you do not have the Son, if you do not believe in the Son, that Jesus is God, the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah, then you don't know the Father. This does what? This relates again to what? That oneness that Jesus has with God and also infers what? The divine nature with God. And so, okay, I don't want to rehash all of this again because I see now I'm starting to make this video longer than I had anticipated. But it goes again to what I was just saying. All of what Jesus was teaching is kind of like congealed into these prayer points that Jesus is making now to the Father on behalf of his people. But what does he say? He talks about the giving of eternal life that they may know you, the only true God. Now, I've heard certain people, let me make a digression here because I think it is important. They try to use this particular statement to say that Jesus is not declaring himself to be God here. He's saying that only God the Father is the only true God. Well, what else can God the Father be except the only true God? That's number one. And number two, have you missed the whole point of the Gospel of John? The very first statement about Jesus is in the beginning was the word. I just said that. And the word was God. And verse 14, what? The word was made flesh. And what? John chose seven particular signs, miracles. Why? John said, I am not trying to show you all the signs. We'll see that at the end of John's gospel. All of the signs that Jesus performed. But I am showing you these particular signs that you may believe that Jesus is the son of God. The prologue of John, the prologue chapters, one, chapter one, verses one through 18, that's the prologue of John, sets forth what John intends to communicate through his gospel. And what is the prologue trying to say? 
that salvation comes through God alone, the God who is made flesh and dwelt with us and we beheld his glory. That God, that manifest God, that unique son of God in the world. Some people take, when Jesus says the only true God, he is not referencing himself. I've seen uh, 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 Jesus only, um, which Church of Christ people, whatever, whatever the denomination is. I'm not much for a denomination basher, but if the doctrine is incorrect, it is incorrect. And they try to use this particular verse to say that Jesus is not declaring himself to be God. What else would he call the Father except the only true God? And he has consistently equated himself to be equal with the father. You have to ignore everything that Jesus has been saying about himself to highlight this particular statement alone and say, see, Jesus is not God. He said that the father is the only true God, but Jesus is not God. No, Jesus is simply functioning. Notice what I just said. He is functioning in his role, his messianic role, as a high priest. He is the true high priest. That's what the whole point. Oh, I'm making this longer than it needs to be, but let me say it anyway. He is the true high priest. It is not the function of Aaron that is the truly high priest, that is the family of Aaron. I'm in the book of Hebrews now. I have totally digressed, but allow the digression. Aaron is simply a figure of the high priest. The true high priest comes not from the family of Aaron who die as the book of Hebrews say, and thus such priests have to be what? Have to continue in one succession after another. But the true high priest comes after what? The Bible says, Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn and will never change his mind. What? That you, Messiah Jesus, are a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, I was not supposed to go there. And I know you probably weren't ready for that. I can't wait till we get into the book of Hebrews, another one of my favorite books concerning the Messiah, Jesus. But anyway, Jesus is functioning as a high priest. This verse, by him calling God the Father, the only true God, is not saying Jesus is not considering himself as a part of the divine being. It is just simply Jesus functioning in the role of the high priest. What is the high priest? He is the go-between, one who is taking another or representing another to the Father. What is Jesus doing? He is praying for his children, for the disciples, to the Father, the functioning of the high priestly role. This is not a denial of his divinity. And anyway, what do you think he's gonna call the Father other than the only true God? A false God? God is a false God. And the Lord, our God, is one, one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay, enough of that, because too long. And then he begins to say in verse number four, and let me speed up, saints, if I can. And I don't want to cheat you guys by going too fast. He's, he, Jesus now, in verse number four, what you'll see is this in the language that he uses. Actually, it's found in the verb tenses. The verb tenses that Jesus uses here, four or five and on, are primarily aorist tense. We would say simply call it the past tense. 
In other words, Jesus is looking to the future of having accomplished the work of God dying on the cross, and we already understand the resurrection from the dead, and finally ascension into heaven. This is the will of the Father. But it speaks in the perfect tense, when we say the perfect tense, that is the absoluteness of Jesus doing what the Father would have him to do, although he hadn't done it yet. That's why he said, I glorified you on the earth. Remember, the glory that Jesus had, it goes all the way back to chapter 12 when the Gentiles wanted to see Jesus, but we're not going to rehash that. But the glory of Jesus, Jesus' glory of the Father is what? Him offering of his life. Notice the past tense usage of the verb. I glorified you on the earth. In other words, I did what you sent me to do. So Jesus is now looking beyond the cross to the perfect sense of everything that you sent me to do, to come, to live, to preach, to prophesy, to die, and all of these things, I have done them. So Jesus speaks in the past tense as he looks to the future. That is, this is what we call that perfect tense. That is, Jesus will certainly accomplish what the Father desires him to do, all right? So what he says, that back to that sense of the glory is what? I've done the, I've done what you wanted me to do, having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. And then he says, what again? Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory that I had before the world existed. Now, okay, this will take some time. Maybe this chapter won't be as short as I thought. <laughs> so now Jesus looks beyond the cross, beyond his resurrection from the dead, to his ascension and return back to where he was before, that is in heaven with God. And so now Jesus simply says to the father, his request is having done all that you sent me to do, right? The death on the cross and all of that. Now, father, glorify me. And now Jesus speaks of that radiant glory. Jesus glorified the Father in his obedience. His request now to the Father is to glorify him with the radiance and the beauty of the glory of God. Okay. When Jesus took human form, Jesus did not walk around as a glorified being. When you saw him, he looked like a man. He looked like you and me. He can do some incredible things. We understand that right? These were the signs that Jesus did. And his words could truly puncture the mind and the heart. But nevertheless, when you saw him, he looked like a person. He slept like a person. He ate like a person. But that was just a shell. Remember Matthew chapter 17, when Jesus was transfigured in the mountain and Jesus began to glow this is that radiant glory that Jesus has of himself. But this glory had to be subdued in order for Jesus to do the job, to do the job of the Messiah, to come in human form, to die on a cross. But once this job was accomplished, Jesus now prays, this is where we are now, to the Father, now return to me, return to me, Father, that radiant glory that I had before the world existed. So 
Jesus wanted to be returned back to a form, and I'm not going to get into all of the details here because we can definitely talk about that more extensively, but this is not the time for it. But just allow me to say a form of the glory that Jesus had before the world existed. So there are a few things that we can bring out here. He is asking the father, now that my job is done, the human form that I simply have, that human form that perishes. Father, replace it with a glorious form that will never perish ever again, okay? We'll talk about those transitions later as we work through the Bible. But give me that glory that I once had. Another point that we have to understand is, Jesus said, before the world existed, again, here is a contrasting statement. When Jesus said, well, remember they said, the only true God, and he said, Jesus was saying that he was not God, but God was the only true God. In order to pre-exist, you must be God. It takes us all the way back again to what? The thesis statement of John chapter one. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning, what beginning? When there was no beginning, it's not trying to point to a specific time, it's pointing to a dateless time. In the beginning, what was the word? The word was existing and the word was existing with God. How long did God exist? God the Father exists for all eternity, from eternity past to eternity future. Forever you are God. And who existed with him during that time? John 1 and 1. The word, that word that was made flesh, that is Jesus. So Jesus is asking the Father and making that request to Father that give me this glory. This glory pertains to his divinity. That form of, not a complete, we'll talk about all of that later, form of divinity, but what? That he had with the Father before the foundation of the world. Why did I hammer that? Because Jesus is letting us see clearly here that he pre-existed again all the way back to John chapter one. In order to pre-exist in such a manner before all of creation, you must be a divine being. What? So Jesus is never saying he is not God. He acknowledges the role that he plays in salvation, but he does not say he is not God and he never denies his eternal existence. And this is what Jesus is speaking about in verse number five, the glory that he had when the world, even the universe even existed. That's why he can say before even Abraham was what I am. He is God. He has the glory of God. Okay, enough of that. But let's continue on in the prayer because this got out of hand right, right quick. Verse number six. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Let me just inter interject here. See how he keeps going back to that. It's a beautiful thing. It congeals with the Matthew chapter six, what? All that God's people, those who believe in Jesus, all Christians, 
are a gift. They belong to God. They are a gift of the Father to the Son. Notice how he keeps touching that. I manifested your name to the men. What men? Whom you gave to me of the world. So you see, election is all over this. But let me just go and read the passage. They were yours. See, you can't deny it. They were yours and what? You gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. Well, let me just read it on, saints. For the words which you gave me, I have given them, given to them, and they received them and truly understand that I came forth from you, and they believe that you sent me. So let's just stop here so we don't have to go too far. Jesus just simply continuing the prayer. And once again, what does he do? He acknowledges that saints, those who are saved, belong to God. They are chosen of salvation by the will of God in eternity past. God has made that choice to save certain people. And what does he do? He gives them to Jesus. These people come to faith in Jesus and then coming to faith in Jesus, he gives them eternal life. And so Jesus said, we kind of in prayer of thanksgiving and simple recollection, what does he say? I gave them, you gave them to me. I gave them what you wanted me to give them. I gave them what? Your word. And they have believed the words that I have spoken to them. Namely what? namely what? The words that I have said about myself. Listen, verse number eight, for the words which you gave me, I've given to them. They received and truly understood what? That I came forth from you. So the word that Jesus gave them is the word of who he is. Because remember, the whole context of this coming to Jesus is salvation. A man, a woman, whatever. It's never saved by what you do. You are saved because you believe that Jesus is God who has come in the flesh. You believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sin and that he rose from the dead the third day. You believe in the person of Jesus, God and man. Jesus said, Father, you gave me a word to give them. I gave them that word. And what was that word all about? Jesus said in verse number eight, I came forth from you. The word is all about me. And in believing what I said about myself, they are saved. Okay. They have been delivered out of this world and they believe what ultimately that you sent me. So this is the person of Jesus. Always remember when he does this, that's why you have to work through the gospel of John, all of it, work all the way through the, the gospel of John. And that's how you want to do every book of the Bible. Do not take a passage in isolation. You can't do that. It is dangerous to do that. Every passage has a particular context. It has a particular context in some sort, in a, a, a overall contextual passage. It has a context in the idea or the theme of the writer of that book. It has a context. So you have to remain in the context of John and the full context of John is hammering what? 
the deity, deity means God, the deity of Jesus, okay? And what is Jesus bringing them? He said, I brought them this word. And what did they do? They believed it. And what did they receive? Of course, salvation, right? But let's go on. Verse number nine, we're continuing with the prayer. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours. You see, it's beautiful. Are mine are yours, and yours are mine. What, what, do, what do you sense right there? Unity. They are yours. Again, back to John 6. All that the Father gives me, people belong to God. The elect, the saints belong to God. God has chosen them for salvation, for himself for his own will to give them to the son. And look, it just, in his, it just all congeals in this prayer. Again, what? I'm not asking on that simply behalf. I ask on, I'm sorry, I'm asking on their behalf. Jesus is praying for his people. Notice he says, I do not pray for the world. That should teach us something right there. And I don't think I have to make a loan to do about that. It is never for us to pray for the world, but to pray for the elect whom God has chosen in this world. We don't pray for the world. The world is lost. The world is unbelieving. The world and all of its sinfulness will one day be completely destroyed. That's Revelation chapter 20 and also Revelation chapter 21. When all of this sinful world, and we should be looking forward to the day when all of this mess comes to an end, when God brings our own sinful nature to an end. But anyway, anyway, okay. Don't, let's go back. Let's go back. I, I'm doing more preaching than I actually thought I would do. Back to didacticness, the teaching. Not praying for the world, but I'm praying for those that you've given me out of the world. And then he says in verse number 10, what? The all things that are mine are yours and yours are mine. You already know what he's talking about. What? What is God's is Jesus. What is Jesus is God's referring back to unity and absolute unity that Jesus has with the father. Speaking, inferring to what? Jesus's divinity. But the principal basis here is unity. Remember what I told you guys early in the video, what the theme of the prayer would be? Glorification. Glorification of what? The Father, glorification of the Son, and ultimately glorification of his people. And how will that glorification be attained in that unity? That unity, that glorification would be revealed in that unity, unity that the father has with the son, the unity that the son has with the father and the unity that God, father and son and Holy Spirit will have with his people. But anyway, so now we begin to prepare for the moving of the theme of John's prayer from that theme of what glory to that theme of unity. But that unity begins with what? The unity that the father has with the son, right? That is divine unity. But let's just keep going because we're still in the, well, all of it is the prayer. So what happens? Uh, 
But those whom you have given me, verse number nine, they are yours, 10. And all things that are mine are yours and yours are mine. And I have been glorified in them. Notice how that, that theme of glorification and unity are coming into play. I am no longer in the world and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Now, it gets a little thick here, but let's just work through it. So what happens? Jesus is looking beyond the cross. Notice what he says. I am no longer in the world. And we know Jesus has not yet made it to the cross. But remember what I said, Jesus is speaking in that perfect tense. That is, having accomplished everything that God the Father would have him to accomplish, to die on the cross, resurrect from the dead, ascend back into heaven, and have that glory that Jesus has asked the Father all about, okay? So he says, I'm no longer in the world. That is, looking forward to the time when all of these things are done, Jesus will no longer be in the world. What? He prays for them, what? Yet they are in the world. Keep them. Notice, keep them. Jesus does not pray that his people should be segregated from the world. Jesus does not pray that his people should be secluded from the world. We can see this in Paul's teaching, but I'm not going to get into all of that. Jesus prays that what? Even though he is out of the world, while, okay, let me say it this way. While he was in that, this point, it points specifically, points specifically for the eleven but it also has practical application for all of his people. It principally deals with all of his people, but you can see directly how it pertains to the 11. Why? While I was with them, see that? While Jesus was with the 11, what did he do? He guarded them. He protected them. He gave them the word of God. But what? Jesus now, he's looking forward to his death, and ascension and return back into heaven. He's no longer there. So he's praying that the father should do what? Continue to protect them in his absence. That is his bodily absence, not his spiritual absence from his people, because he kept talking about what? That he will, just chapter 15, he and the father would come in and abode in the believer. He is speaking of his physical absence. What? He says, I'm no longer in the world, so I'm saying, Father, keep them and protect them. And ultimately, I want them to have this unity, a similarity of unity that we have. I want them to be one even as we are one. Now, that is not saying that God's people share a divine unity. No, this is the unity of community that we have with the Father and the Son. The spiritual unity of community that we have with the Father and Son, and ultimately that unity of community that we share with one another. And in that shared unity, 
we can understand what it is to be in communion with the Father and Son, okay? So don't get this confused to see that the unity that Jesus has with the Father is the same unity that we can have with the, no, no, no. Jesus has an absolute divine unity with the Father that no one else has because Jesus shares in the being of God. We don't. We are simply creatures, okay? But nevertheless, Jesus wants us to experience the fellowship of unity, spiritual unity with him as well as with one another. But so he finishes verse number 12 to simply say this, to talk about how he, the idea of the prayer, God take care of them because while I was on the earth, I took care of them. And the only one I didn't take care of is you is Judas. He calls him the son of perdition. So let me just give a very brief word on this. The son of perdition, the one devoted to destruction, the one destined to destruction, the one predestined to destruction. I did not take care of him. Why? because the scriptures had already declared his condemnation and his destruction so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. So Judas, even though chosen by Jesus, you have to understand, Judas was not chosen by Jesus for preservation. Judas was not chosen by Jesus for salvation. God did not give Judas to Jesus for his salvation. Judas was chosen by Jesus to betray him. Jesus says, have I not chosen, have I not chosen for myself, all of you, and guess what I know, one of you is a devil. I chose a devil. Why? So that the scriptures might be fulfilled. He is the one whom God has chosen to betray me. And that's the bottom line, okay? So Jesus simply says, as we end this particular section, he asked the father, take care of his disciples, those 11 in particular, principally for all of us, but the only one that he did not take care of was Judas, why? He was destined for destruction and therefore he was outside of the purveyance of Jesus's protective care. All right, now let's go on. Let's see if we can kind of wrap this thing up. 13, but now I come to you and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. You remember that? Even as I am not of the world, I do not ask you to take them out of the world but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Okay, this part is pretty much simple. Jesus is doing what we already know. He is continuing his prayer. He is saying, keep them, Father, so that when is it, that, that joy can be made full. Remember, Jesus was already telling them earlier about how they will suffer persecution, and he's beginning to talk about it again here, uh, lightly so. 
and the world would hate them, how they would be put out of the synagogue, how that men would persecute them and think that, and think that they would be doing the will of God in persecuting the saints of Jesus. Why? Because these men persecuting the saints are of the world, but Jesus's people whom he is praying for, keep them, Lord, protect them according to God's will. This does not mean harm would not come to them. It just simply means no harm apart from the will of God would come to them. Let me say that again. It does not mean harm would not come to us. It just simply means no harm apart from the will of God. If God says, this is my will that it should happen, it will happen, okay? Sickness will come, death will come, persecution will come, but all of these things will be according to what? The will of God, you got it? So Jesus is praying, but anything apart from your will, Father, protect them from those who are in the world. And that's when he gets to the thing, he said, why? Because the world hates them. The world hates them because the world hated me. And so he says again, as I told you guys early, even though I'm praying for them, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. I'm not saying that the saints of God should be secluded from the world or separate themselves from the world. Don't have nothing to be, to be what is like the Mennonites or something of that nature or, or, or Amish that absolutely separate. I'm not saying that father, but nevertheless, protect them, protect them from the evils of the world. And here it has that definite article, the evil one, that's what we call it, right? But the idea is, it is the devil who is the father. He is the one who, from whom all evil comes from. All evil comes from the devil. And so Jesus simply praying, father, protect his children from the works of the devil even the devil himself, okay? Don't, don't separate, we don't have to separate ourselves from the world, we don't have to do that, but our Lord is praying that we should be protected in this world, even in our sanctification. And I'm not gonna get into all of that. <laughs> because what? Here it comes in some of the very next thing. They are not of the world, uh, even as I am not of the world. 17, sanctify them in the truth. What? Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they may, so, uh, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be also in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. That's kind of thick, but okay, it's not difficult. The prayer is a flowing prayer. So what? They're going into a world, he's still praying, a world that hates them. And I'm not asking you, Father, to take them out of the world. I'm just asking you to protect them from all of the evils that the devil would try to throw at them. Anything that is, a, that is not according to your will, Father, protect them, okay? And then he pretends to say what? Sanctify them in the truth. What does it mean by sanctify them in the truth? 
He answers it. Your word is the truth. That is, sanctification deals with the sense of separation. What is the two, the idea that he's been saying? They are in the world. Separate them from the world. What separates us from the world? The truth of Jesus. The truth and, okay, again, the truth of the person of Jesus. Who is Jesus? Jesus, my testimony. He is God. He is God made flesh and he is the one who died for my sins and he rose from the dead. I believe in him and I devote my life to him. In all of my failures, nevertheless, I hold firmly to Jesus and Jesus alone. And in that, in, and in that testimony, in that confession that I just made to you, I'm Lord, help me to abide by what you say. Give me understanding of what you say. Set in my heart your word. Your word have I hidden in my heart. Why? So that I don't sin against you. Again, all of that. Sanctify them, Father, in your truth. What? Your word is the truth. The word of who Jesus is and the word of our, or should I even say, our submission to the will of Jesus our obedience to Jesus. And so this is how we are sanctified in the world because we believe in Jesus. He is God. He is man. Died for us. We believe in that. And therefore we do what? We dedicate our lives to them. This is the truth of the word. And so he just simply said, as I have sanctified myself, Jesus Okay, we don't want to deal. That's a beautiful statement, but we don't want to get into a lot of details. Remember what is Paul said in the book of in the book of Philippians, chapter two. In the beginning, Jesus had the very form of God. He had no body, but what did he do? He chose to take upon himself the form of a slave, and that is by taking human form, Jesus subjected himself. He lowered himself to enter into humanity to do the will of the Father. So he sanctified himself. He separated himself from what he once was and how he was in the glory and all that he had. That's what he talked about in the book of John earlier, chapter 17. Father, give me back the glory that I had with you before the world even existed. But what did Jesus do? He sanctified himself for a purpose. What was that purpose? To come into this world and save by offering his life. Even as I sanctify myself, let them also sanctify them. So you keep them, Father, keep them so that they, and he says it to us, said we might be sanctified in the world, different, serving the purpose of Jesus in the world, carrying the banner of our Lord not only in our mouths, but in our lives, Jesus is Lord, that we might sanctify ourselves and ultimately notice, notice that congealing glue that we may experience a similarity of what the son has with the father. What is that? Oneness. 
So, Father, so that they may be one as I am in you, you are in me, and even they are in us. That oneness that comes when they sanctify themselves as I sanctified myself. Okay, but let's just wrap this part up. So, in other words, what do we see? Now, as we move towards toward the end of the prayer, we see now those two things coming together. What? The glory that Jesus talks about, the glory of the Father, and that Jesus would do the will of the Father, and he speaks in that perfect tense as if he's already done that thing, going to the cross. The glory of the Son, once Jesus had accomplished his purpose on the earth, ascended back to the Father, Father, glorify me with the glory that I once had. And then the glory that Jesus would pray for also even for his own people and all of that coming together in that experience of oneness, okay? Now, let's see if we can bring it to a close. Uh, did I do number 21? But let me make sure I do it, though. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, and one. I did the oneness part. That they may be also in us, but here's the part. So that the world may believe that you sent me. Again, notice how all of it still works perfectly together. Jesus spoke to his disciples. Remember he said to his disciples earlier, I give you a final commandment. What is that commandment? That you love one another, even as I have loved you. By this, the world will know that, that the father has sent me. By the love that we have for one another. Notice, by that unity that we have with one another. It is a unity that is bound by love. This is what Paul, the apostle, was teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I have the gift of tongues, if I have all of the gifts, if I could do magnificent works, and if I lack love, it means nothing. And that's what Paul said. The greatest of all things is love. What things abide, what things remain after all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit are gone. What things abide? Faith, hope and love. These things remain. That love that is the bond, again, Paul's teaching in the book of Philippians, and also Paul's teaching in a number of his epistles, love is that bond of unity. And this is the same thing that Jesus said, what? That he has this love for the Father. And again, what? The Father in the Son, the Son in the Father, and now what do you have? The God's people, Jesus's people in both the Father and the Son, that unity that flows out of our bond. All right, but let's go ahead. Let's finish it. Remember the last thing that I said was what? The glory of the believer. We already dealt with the glory of the Father. That is when Jesus does his will, dies. The glory of the Son, when Jesus returns into heaven, he said, glorify me with the glory that I had before the world beginning. And now in this final section, Jesus will pray now for what? The glory of the believer. Watch. 22. The glory which you have given me. Let me just read it all, saints, and bring this to a close. The glory which you have given me, praying to the Father, I have given to them, what? That they may be one just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfect in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Okay, let me just stop right there because it'll get a little thick. Notice the glory. The glory here is for the believer. The glory which you have given me, notice, 
God gives to Jesus, I have given to them. Now, what is that glory? That glory is not the same here, right here, right here, as the transcendent glory of Jesus. The transcendent glory of Jesus, what Jesus prayed for earlier in John chapter 17, when he says, glorify me with the glory that I had with you even before the world began. That's transcendent glory, okay? Matthew chapter 17, glory. That's not what Jesus is saying here. The literal context here of glory here is unity. Notice what he says. The glory which you have given me, I've given to them. What glory? That. What glory? That they may be one. See? So it is the glory of unity. It is the experience of the fellowship of unity, the community of unity. As the son has this beautiful relationship of unity with the father, he's asking that the father also allow his people to have unity with him and with one another. I Notice, I in them, you in me, that they may be perfect in unity. So the glory that Jesus is speaking of here is the glory of unity. And all of this works to say what? It is the proof, Jesus says, by this glory of unity, it proves indeed God sent me. Okay, now let's continue on with the statements of glory as we move into the sense of transcendent glory for the believer. What? Now we're finishing this up, moving into the issue of transcendent glory. Remember, we talked about the glory of Jesus, transcendent. That is like the Matthew chapter 17, when Jesus went into the mountain and he began to shine. Transcendent glory. Father, glorify me with the glory that I had before the world began. Transcendent glory. The glory that he just talked about for the believer right here earlier, verses 22, 23, glory of unity. Now, in the remaining parts of 17, Jesus is going to now talk about transcendent glory, a glory similar to his in, in power, in, in glory, in magnificence, in radiance. Now he's going to try to talk about that part, okay? So let's hit it. Father, what? I desire that they also, whom you have given me, what? Be, be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me for you love me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous father, although the world has not known you yet, I have known you and these have known that you sent me and I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. That's beautiful. So he finishes up the prayer. Father, I desire that you all that they be with me. Okay. Remember, it takes us all the way back to Jesus' statement in John chapter 14. Don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places. For not so, I would not have told you so. I am going away, but I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away to prepare this place for you, what? I will come again to receive you unto myself. Now, let me also, this is in what? In heaven itself. This is what? In heaven itself. But tell me something. What did the apostle Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15? 
flesh, mere flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Mere mortal flesh cannot inherit the wonders that God has awaiting for his people. There must be some form of a change in us. That's why I said what? Transcendent glory for the believer. Jesus not only prays for his own transcendent glory in the beginning of chapter 17, but when he says, Father, I pray, I want them, those whom you have given me, I want them to be with me and to behold my glory that you have given to me. The only way that we're going to behold the glory of the Messiah is in transcendent form itself. So Jesus not only prays for his own glory, he also prays for the glorification of his people. And again, this is something that the apostle Paul talks about even in Romans chapter eight, but I'm not going to get into all of that. Those whom he justified, what did he do? He glorified. But anyway, so Jesus prays for what? The glory of his people. And then he yields his prayer going back to again, talking about what? the unity that the son has with the father, the father has with the son, and such a unity, as we said to you guys earlier, which is based on love. What? I want my people to be with me. So ultimately we know we will be with Jesus to fulfill John 14. And then he says, and I want them to behold my glory. We will see him as he is. We will see one day Jesus in glorified form. And by seeing these things, it will be an evidence of what? That the father indeed has loved the son. That's what, oh, righteous father, the world does not know you, but guess what? These people do know you. I have given your word to them. I have made your word known to them and I have made your love known to them. And I want them to know what in the end, how much you truly loved me. And notice, when did you love me? Notice that you loved me from the foundation of the world. So when you, let me just simply say it this way as we bring this to a close. When the scripture says that God is love, God is love, there needs to be an object. There needs to be an object. Since God is eternal, God is forever, and God is love, he has to have an eternal object that he was loving forever. I hope I didn't throw you off too bad. God exists forever. And John says, what? God is love. If God is love, there must be an object, something for him to love. So what was the eternal God loving forever? Jesus says, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. In order for Jesus to be loved by the eternal God forever, he himself had to be forever. And there is only one being who has the quality of existing for all eternity, God. Only God exists forever. So once again, what has John 
interwoven into all of these things, even in this final priestly prayer. The eternality, the divine nature of Jesus. Jesus is God. Okay. Thanks for joining me with all of that. Quick wrap, because that was much longer than I had anticipated. John 17, it's just simply praying for what? Glory. That is the theme of all. It is the final prayer of Jesus for those 11 apostles and principally for his church as a whole. And he is praying for what? For glory. The glory of the Father in accomplishing his will on the cross. The glory of the Son in Jesus returning back to where he was and experiencing what? This transcendent, radiant glory that Jesus had before the world ever existed. And then finally, what? The glory of his people as the, the people of Jesus experience, share in that spiritual community of fellowship, the oneness oneness with the Father and the Son, and the oneness with one another. And ultimately, that transcendent glory that Jesus will give his people when his people return back to him. Or should we even say, when Jesus returns to get his people so that they may do what? Behold his glory. And when they see the glory of Jesus, what will they know? They will know it is this one whom the Father loved from the beginning of all time. And in understanding that, you understand who he truly, truly is. This beloved one who died for your sins existed before the foundation of the earth. He is God. All right, guys, thanks for joining me with all of that. Join me next time as we get into chapter 18 and then we finally get into the Garden of Gethsemane and things will move quite rapidly where we understand Jesus will be betrayed by Judas, arrested, and of course it begins what? His trial and crucifixion. But anyway, if these teachings have been a blessing to you, then may I ask you to do something. Join alongside this ministry. There is always a link in the description that you can use to support the ministry and simply say, Pastor Lee, thanks for that. Thanks for that teaching. And I want to join with you so that you can continue to bring these teachings. I'm asking you to do so. And also, always, for those of you who have supported this ministry and a number of you have done so, let me say thank you. But anyway, guys, enough of all of that. Glad to see you. See you next time.